This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 176, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Rana Gujral, CEO of Behavioral Signals, to discuss the automated detection of emotion and tone in human conversation, which has many applications in many sectors, as you can imagine. AI, ML, or quotes, what I've got my computer to do, has moved forward at an astonishing pace in recent years, as we've heard several times in the podcast. Few now remember that the AI promises in the 1960s fell almost entirely flat in the 1970s, and for a long time the topic was a total damp squib, outside proving mathematical theorems and stuff like that. It didn't even appear in my computer science degree early in the 1980s. As well as obvious factors like huge leap forwards in computing power, one important angle was that the early pioneers simply did not understand the complexity of the challenges they were facing. Look at how many decades it took, for example, to produce a robot capable of bipedal locomotion. Siri slash Alexa et al. are still way off the Star Trek computer of the 1960s or Blake's 7 in the 1970s. However, progress on these matters is always non-linear and we're in much more exciting territory now. And this topic is certainly a new one for me. I was rather sceptical, to be honest, about the incoming email on this as it all sounded rather too sci-fi and perhaps a little hyped. And it's the kind of topic, going back to the complexity of the problem domain, which is that even humans can't detect tone accurately in a conversation 100% of the time. We'll hear how well machines can do it from Rana. But sci-fi is upon us. A notable prior episode being LFP 137 with Marek Zvivka Sibli, co-founder of Trulliance, who joined us to discuss two-way interactive man-machine interaction via holograms, or 2D in browser avatars, think Holly from Red Dwarf. I recall a very creepy feeling of a computer image of a rather pretty lady following me around with her eyes and head whenever I moved about the room. Maybe truly Marek, Rana and Boston Dynamics should all get together and build a new C3PO. Or on the other hand, maybe not, as these days it would be woke, which would be rather too much to take. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Morning, Rana. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Morning, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Rana, I was mentioning bipedal locomotion in the introduction, and I'm not quite sure what the word is, but you're into bicyclical locomotion or something yourself, i.e. things with two wheels on. I love cycling. Um, I'm a cycling fanatic. And I think, you know, uh, this quarantine has been somewhat of a blessing in disguise in the sense that I've had this all this time uh, and less cars on the road. So I've been out on my bike uh, a lot and I've been out on the trails and the mountains a lot on the mountain bike as well with, you know, people getting all freaked out and trying to avoid civilization, which has been a good thing because, you know, then you can bomb those trails without all the hikers coming down up. So yeah, there's been some silver lining to this very dark cloud in the last, I'd say, 12 months. And which part of the world you're in and, and how much sort of horizontal distance and vertical distance do these, these trails go? Yeah, so, you know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We got some beautiful trails out here. Specifically, I'm in the Blackhawk region. Yeah, we got Mount Diablo State Forest in the back. Uh, it's one of the tallest peaks in the Bay. 
it's a quite a massive spread in terms of the trail zone. And we got some really beautiful single tracks, um, some really good technical mountain biking uh, trails. And they go on for miles and miles. I'm not quite sure what the square footage is uh, in terms of the entire spread. But um, uh, you could be out there all day riding and not repeat a trail. Wow. And so in your case, do you go out for half an hour, sort of six hours or something in the middle? I try to get out as much as I can. I mean, uh, usually it happens at the end of the day before, you know, it gets dark. And so it's like, you know, those uh, hours or so before sunset kicks in and uh, then it gets a little sketchy coming down uh, single track black trails. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's the goal. Yes, well, funny enough, coincidentally enough, Bridget and I just watched with our lunch an NHK program. You can get the NHK app on, on Amazon Fire Stick. And they've got some interesting programs, one of which is cycling around Japan. And it was uh, actually an American triathlete who moved to Japan quite some time ago. And he was cycling all around Nagano Prefecture, which is the, the landlocked one sort of in the centre of the, of the main island. Roughly speaking, in autumn, absolutely stunning colours and sort of stunning scenery i mean you know you you look at something like that and think maybe i should be fit and and do nice things like that because it's the kind of thing that when it's perfect i'm sure it's wonderful but equally this as we live very close to where the 2012 olympics were cycled around um, just south of london here equally i've passed a cyclist on these hills in the pouring rain fixing a deflated tire so there's a kind of heaven and hell spectrum yeah so your career obviously never went along the lines of being a professional cyclist but has brought you to Something which, as I say, is uh, pretty unique, at least as far as my sort of uh, small world experience goes at the moment and working in a very fascinating field. So what took you today from wherever it was you started when you left college and had some debts to pay off and thought I should pay off my debts? Oh, it's been quite a journey. I'd say, you know, if I look back, I've been building things and fixing things uh, from the word go. Initially, obviously, it was products. I mean, building products, uh, software products, hardware products. I've been through part of some really iconic product journeys. Uh, Early off in my career, I started to work with this iconic uh, time and attendance company where we bought this innovation to the market, which was a biometrics uh, time management machine for the hourly workers that became a runaway success. I mean, it raked in a billion dollars just during my tenure, and I was at the forefront of that product innovation. It was incredible. Then I had this amazing opportunity to go part of, uh, be part of some uh, iconic product journeys at Logitech, the smart uh, home sort of evolution in the industry. I was part of the first sort of smart TV stack, uh, Google TV, which eventually became Chrome Stick, and um, graduated eventually at some point in my career from building products and fixing products to building companies and fixing companies. Got into this amazing journey of sort of uh, taking this iconic uh, company that had shrunk from half a billion sales in its heyday to bank being bankrupt with 300 million of debt on the balance sheet and losing 100 million every year. And so worked on its turnaround, got it into the positive territory and was an amazing experience of sort of what it takes uh, all all across. I mean, from an innovation standpoint to operation standpoint to people standpoint to go make that happen. Also did a, a startup right after from scratch, venture backed, which was an amazing journey, which got acquired in 2016. And uh, then more recently, um, you know, I had this opportunity to be part of this incredible team and this incredible journey in voice AI at Behavioral Signals. And, uh, you know, we're uh, sort of in this very fortunate position to 
sort of go make a very, very tangible impact in the whole voice AI conversational AI space with our technology. So been been very fortunate and that's been very exciting so far. Yes, it sounds fascinating. I, I can quite see why you uh, you didn't become a professional cyclist. There, there must be more monotony in that than than the journey you've had. And I mean, there's one thing in passing. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned words like Google, which gives a lot of clout to make things happen. Um, and also, uh, I think there are one or two tech companies in, in, in Silicon Valley. Um, although I think actually haven't all the aerospace ones and moved out now to Texas or something. I saw recently some amazing things, given it sort of the origins and how how things do. Greatly change. exaggerated. Greatly exaggerated. Don't 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 believe that. <laughs> don't believe Mr. Musk, Mr. Musk at all, or the sort of the Texas secession agency. Mr. Musk has definitely moved, but the story of uh, California's death has been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, well, even I, I'm, I wouldn't exactly describe myself as completely Texan. Uh, even I was thinking, well, if Texas does secede and this count. This country it remains as stupid as it uh, it is at the moment. Maybe I shall have to uh, apply to become uh, a Texan as well. We, we could do with something sort of chopping the world up like that, having some new countries for a change. But just going back to the uh, innovation, which is a, a very West Coast thing, joking apart, but you know, then it matures uh, over time and it just becomes an industry like aerospace, for example. You know, it still innovates, but most of what it does is pretty much the same as last week. I mean, one of the things that People often have the idea, which is that, you know, people who sort of, shall we say, working big co and would like to go indie and all that kind of stuff, that sometimes they think, oh, I want this most amazing, unique invention that no one's ever thought of before. And, and then, it'd be, you know, really good. I'm slightly caricaturing it, but, you know, then it'd be so much easier. But what I found quite often, actually, is that if you've got something which is completely different, you have a hell of a problem explaining to people what it is because they have no real reference points. You know, a simple case is it's much easier to sell blueberry ice cream because you, you, if you say to me, what's that like, Mike? I say, well, basically, it's an ice cream that tastes of blueberries. You, you can immediately triangulate to something. And when Marek was on the show with his sort of 2D hologrammy thing, you know, I sort of, it, it was all explained to me over email and a conversation, all this, but it wasn't until I saw it that I actually got it. And in the same way, poor Poppy, uh, uh, who contacted me um, from you guys, did have sort of several e- emails to me where I said, this is what we do. And I reply going, really? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we detect it. Really? How well? This kind of stuff. Hmm. You know, and so there's quite a lot of sort of uh, uh, scepticism, um, in, you know, just around the sort of the technology, because it does sound sci-fi and it is to a certain extent sci-fi, or perhaps 10 years ago, or certainly 20 years ago, it would have been sci-fi. And then, uh, you know, as we'll get on to later in the show, it also produces the challenge, which also I think Marek was having with, uh, with Truly, which is there are so many infinite potential use cases of this if it works well enough above some hurdle, you know, requirement that, you know, it's a bit like um, having sort of a huge amount of, I don't know, let's say Anglo and American and, and allied troops in the Second World War and looking at Europe's coastline line and going, that's quite a long coastline. Uh, uh, should we pick here or should we pick there or should we, we, we pick there? But let's let's slice that up sort of uh, little by little. And maybe um, we'll just start with a little bit of the the history, how far would you have to go back, roughly speaking? I mean, I'm not going to sort of hold you by the hour and the day and the minute, but when this really wasn't a thing, I mean, it wasn't a thing in 1980. I can guarantee guarantee you that. And I assume it wasn't in 1990. I mean, the internet hadn't really come along by then. I mean, how how recent in an academic context is the technology you've got? Because my assumption is that this has developed in an academic context and now is being commercialized yeah. by people such as yourself. It is, you know, so affect, the science around affect, which is the technical term around emotion AI, is relatively new. I mean, from from, from the, you know, the general sort of uh, bar of sort of uh, the advancements and then voice AI and conversational AI domain. 
And uh, we sort of like had uh, the industry initially sort of focus on the essential dynamics of conversation AI, which is NLP, natural language processing, and NLU, natural language understanding. Because, I mean, if you're holding a conversation, your first uh, sort of uh, battle is to understand what is the other person saying. If, if it's a software system, you have to sort of understand the language and you have to decipher the language in, into accurate terms and accurate words. And, you know, that is what the NLP and NLU has focused on. And uh, you have these amazing set of challenges around sort of uh, understanding various dialects, various accents. Uh, people speak multiple languages at the same time with different words interspersed in it. They speak differently and there's noise aspects and whatnot. So that was the core focus of the industry for almost two decades. Then you have this challenge to respond back in a human sounding language and also do it in multiple languages, et cetera, right? So you kind of have sort of like, you know, some of those things sort of solved, you could see, right? So if you sort of talk to your Alexa or Google, you know, it can understand you uh, no matter how fast you speak or slow you speak or, you know, how, uh, you know, what, what accents you have. And, you know, um, you know, even if you're sort of pausing and eyeing and numbing, it, it gets you. It gets you from a far field microphone and it can respond to you in the language of your choice. And it sounds very much like human. But that's piece of the story, right? So when we're having a conversation, you and I, your brain's doing all of that because your brain does NLP and NLU naturally as you were, you know, as, a, as, as every human does. But your brain does so much more. As a human brain, you're also trying to assess my state of mind, my cognitive state of mind, the emotions and behaviors in my tone of voice. And uh, you're doing it more than the tone of voice. Uh, you're, you're looking at my facial expressions and my body language and everything else, but primarily, at the visceral level, your focus, your brain's focused on my tone of voice. And you're not only understanding what I'm saying, but you're trying to also understand how I'm saying it. Am I, am I you know, sounding happy or engaged or disengaged or negative or positive? And if you ask me a question, what does my response sound like? And that is an essential dynamics of a conversation. And if you can't do that, you and I can't have a conversation. Yes, it sounds very much like the, the next frontier. I mean, as you say, first people had to get sort of Siri and Alexa and, and Google working. So you could actually sort of say to them, what's the weather forecast tomorrow? And, and they come back, it's going to rain, stuff like that. That is phenomenal achievement, um, which has really just perhaps been the last 20 years as far as, as, far as I've seen, and, and has now got to uh, an incredible level that we couldn't have imagined, say, in 1990 very easily, although projections are always too rapid for these things. But then, um, as you quite rightly say, I mean, I was thinking like it's sort of one dimension or two dimensions, and you're now going into the third dimension, which is the emotive context, because we are, we are primates, or actually even more than that, we're mammals. Um, and all mammals process the other mammal, you know, in terms of whether to sort of kill it and eat it, mate with it or run away from it kind of stuff. And, you know, that may sound a bit primitive to us, but we have all that brain architecture still there. If you're walking around a dark part of London, it's just the body language of some other person walking down the street. So yeah. this is happening um, all the time at a, at a very crude level, but also at a much more nuanced level. You know, is he getting bored <laughs> in a business context or you're doing a presentation or, or something like that? So it's a, an incredibly tough domain. So let's presumably, which is, I presume what you do, which is let's put all the body language to one side and let's just focus on the on the voice stream. 
So, you know, I give you a recording of me saying a sentence, this is just you as a person, what I feel are sort of six different emotional tones, like I'm cross, I'm impatient or something like that. And I sort of say as a, as a test, just email me back. I'd expect you to get most of them right. But there's a degree of subtlety in, in human communication, even with people speaking the same language from the same cultural context. So, you know, not even American and, and British, but sort of, let, let's just say, just West Coast context. There's a certain degree of which, we, and we've all had this kind of problem in life at various points, which is that you can't re really understand what the other person is saying. I mean, let's go back to an archetypal thing. You know, you're a teenage boy at school trying to chat up a girl. It can be very tough to work out God, the God, this girl thinks I'm really boring and I should just sort of run away or no, no, I'm still, still got a chance kind of thing. So it's a, just starting off with the, the problem itself before we go onto computers, it is actually quite tough as a human being to do this. It is a hard capability, uh, complex, uh, but it's natural, it's inbuilt in us. So we don't kind of think about it. I mean, it's sort of like speaking. Is speaking difficult? It, it is for someone who is, uh, you know, challenged with the central dynamics of expressing sound or voice, uh, and certainly very difficult for a computer. But uh, for us, I mean, we just speak, we just, and, and so for us, I mean, in our brains, I mean, uh, how we process our affect and how we process emotions is just wired in. Certainly, you know, uh, some of us are better at that than others. I mean, it is scientifically proven that the females among us are better equipped at understanding the state of mind because their their brains are tuned into sort of, uh, you know, processing the voice uh, and the state of uh, the conversation. And so, but I mean, for the most part, it comes naturally to us. I mean, but it's also a very, very difficult science to sort of quantify, right? So if you think about that, what is emotion AI? I mean, emotion is a mental state associated with the nervous system, brought on by chemical changes, variously associated with thoughts, feelings, behavioral responses, and degree of pleasure or displeasure, right? So it's also intertwined with mood, temperament, personality, disposition, and motivation. That's complex stuff. And also it's embodied as well. It's not, it's not just the brain, it's embodied. So let's say I get angry for the sake of argument. For all I know, uh, people who are angry, their throat might constrict a bit and they may, their pitch may change or, 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 or they may sound a bit sort of rougher in the voice box or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Or you speak faster. I mean, oh my God, look, the, the, the things on fire, we got, you know, the, the, there can be so many cues. Yeah, I mean, and we as humans basically project out a lot of affect signals in terms of how we're feeling, whether it's passion, anger, sadness. There's also a bunch of behavioral signals which are translated from various emotional cues, which are uh, like, am I engaged or am I disengaged? And so when you talk about affect and emotional signals, we project that through a variety of different uh, cues as humans, we do it through facial expressions or body language by saying something, by not saying something, by the tone of a voice, and as you said, by speaking fast, uh, you know, in agitation. And I mean, so we're capturing all of that, right? So our particular focus as a company has been around deducing emotions exclusively from the voice aspect or the speech aspects to it. And the way we do it is through a focus on the tonality, which is the pitch and tonal variance, the prosody. And it's not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it and the emphasis behind the words. So if you just stop there and then just try and take a schematic approach, because uh, I'm sure you may have some content online for those people who are technically interested, which is sort of more linear and explains how the sort of clever stuff done, but just from, a, just from a sort of schematic, drawing a few pictures on a whiteboard perspective. So if we rewind the clock to uh, a time when sort of, um, should we say voice recognition didn't exist, or, or let's make it even easier. A computer reading text, you've got an OCR, it OCRs the text and then it pronounces the words. So if I look at a sentence, 
then schematically it's very easy for me to know what the computer needs to do. It needs to find spaces. Before a word and after a word is always a space, so it can parse a word, you know, and then it's got to recognise the letters within them, which, you know, generally don't sort of seem to touch looking at sort of aerial here in front of me. So that a computer can take a picture of a sentence, find the spaces, find the commas, find the letters which it matches to an alphabet. So schematically, of course, it's not that easy, but schematically it's fairly straightforward. But I have no idea, picking up your point, that what I do is automatic in the brain at a level well below conscious level. I have no idea how you would parse a sentence which was just an MP3. I send you an MP3, it's 10 seconds long. What on earth are you parsing for? Okay, you might find gaps, but that's just for voice recognition and that, that's been done. I mean, what do you actually go through? A, I mean, it's literally just a pressure wave, isn't it? Sound. I mean, how do you go through a pressure wave and extract out? stuff or do you or do you just feed your system you know 50,000 examples of people when they're cross sound like this and 50,000 when they're in love they sound like this and 50,000 when they're sleepy they sound like that and, and and leave it to the machine to derive the algorithm i mean so psychologists have used various methods such as factor analysis to attempt to map emotion related responses into a more limited number of dimensions right such methods attempt to boil emotions down to these underlying dimensions that capture the similarities and differences between experiences. Like, so often the first two dimensions uncovered by the factor analysis are valence. That's the most important part, which is how negative or positive the experience feels. And the second is arousal, which is how energized or enervated the experience feels. Those are the two dimensions that you're primarily focused on, valence and arousal. And these two dimensions can be depicted on a 2D coordinate map. And this two-dimensional map has been theorized to capture one important component of emotion called core affect. This is how we really measure affect or we sort of like sort of measure the various sort of like, you know, uh, dimensions of affect. But I mean, emotion recognition is not just classifier. I mean, it's a whole pipeline of machine learning and machine intelligence components. You know, it ranges from speech activity detection. So the engine needs to separate speech from non-speech. That's important. Then it's diarization, It needs to know who spoke when, essentially separate speakers from each other so that emotions of each can be deduced. Third, I mean, speech recognition as well. I mean, the content, the textual representation of a conversation, of a talk, what is the context in which this conversation is happening? I mean, you know, can we can we sort of like beat that in? And so from that, you're focused on the valence and arousal. You're you're unraveling a variety of signals. We call them signals from the tone of voice. First bucket of signals would be emotion signals: anger, happiness, sadness, frustration, neutral state, etc. The second bucket of signals would be behaviors, which is engagement, politeness, empathy. And the third bucket, very very advanced bucket would be taking all of that, applying it into a specific context and sort of like, I'd say, intent signals, which is, you know, what is a person going to do in terms of an action in the near future? And we're predicting that mentally and say, will a client pay or not pay? Will the customer buy or not buy? All of those different things. And so that's sort of like, you know, very high level. I mean, uh, this is probably a three hour, you know, summarized conversation just talk about the science of it but you know that's sort of the the meat and potatoes the high level of it i see well i I think what i get out of that which is very helpful which is uh, again just sort of slightly caricaturing it it's not a question that you've developed a a clever program and, and it goes in and comes out there's actually a whole bunch of things going on in your system 
a bit like a car engine. It's not like there's, if you lift the bonnet and you've never seen it before, there isn't just one thing. There's, there's a whole bunch of things connected together doing different particular jobs. Yes. And it's pulling all of that together. And in the case of the car, sticking it through a prop shaft and making wheels go around. So just in passing, so is it the fact that many tools, if you use that phraseology, many tools have had to be pulled together, which means that it's just started to become possible to do this? Or was literally just the case that, well, actually, look, first we have to understand what people are people are saying that's meant it's happening now and wasn't happening 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Or was it just computing power? Or was it just actually a few academics got around to looking at this sort of seriously or that one academic pulled together 15 other academics from different areas and made a critical mass or something? Why is it happening now? It's always been the goal of the of the folks who've sort of been in the in the in the domain of voice AI and, and conversational AI to uh, get a better sense of what has that conversational experience been like. But the tools at our disposal have been very primitive, right? So if you look at the the larger sort of uh, landscape of conversational AI systems out there, billion dollar companies, multi billion dollar companies with very very successful products in the market. And you look under the hood, for the most part, all of them take the audio of a conversation. Typically, this is a contact center setup, agent client, convert that audio into text using a speech to text on ASR. Then they're parsing the text for meaning, which is, let me now focus on what you said. And based on what you said, I'm going to try to find words, which are happy words. I'm going to find words, which are angry words. I'm going to find words, which are sad words and try to make sense of how this conversation went. But you and I both know, I mean, English is a very complex language. You could say one sentence, and the way you say it could mean 10 different things, not even two, 10. I mean, you could find examples where you could say one sentence in 10 different ways, and if you're just looking at the words, you have no clue. I could say now, that's amazing, or I could say, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Exactly. And so if you're just parsing, that's amazing in a ASR version of this context of the podcast, uh, then you're like, uh, it's subject to interpretation. And you're probably going to, you know, think it that's amazing where you were being completely sarcastic. And you didn't mean that was amazing. Right. And so that's the sarcasm. I mean, by the way, that's a good example. Let's talk about that. Right. So let's say, you know, a complex uh, a product on which billions of dollars have been spent. Let's say, let's pick on Alexa. Compared to a human conversation, you ask me a simple question, say, Rana, would you like to do this? And I said, sure, very sarcastically. And you're like, you know, okay, maybe now is not a good time because you can send sarcasm in my voice. Now, if Alexa asks you that question, you respond with a very sarcastic sure, she can only process the word sure. And sure for her means yes, which means great, let's do it. Therein is the big reason why after billions spent, there's no conversational ability with Alexa because Alexa doesn't understand how you feel and what you are saying, whether you mean that or not, et cetera, et cetera. It's an essential dynamic. How you get that through many ways, but primarily you get that from the tone of voice. So what we focus on is the pitch and tonal variance of prosody. In fact, in fact, vast majority of the use cases, this use case that we built for the banking industry, for the financial institutions, we don't even use ASR. Can you believe that? We don't use speech to text. We do not convert the audio into text. Uh, we, in fact, don't even care what you're saying. We don't care about that. You could be speaking in Chinese or Russian or Japanese, and we'll decipher the same amount of signals and intent from that conversation without ever 
caring about what you've actually said. And it's that powerful. I mean, what you're saying is only marginally relevant. How you're saying is primarily relevant. And that's what you're focused on. Yes, we've been doing a sort of Japan uh, season here recently, going through 1950s Japanese films, particularly uh, Mifune and Kurosawa. We saw um, Throne of Blood, which is uh, Kurosawa and Mifune's version of, of Macbeth on Saturday night. And there's a really funny thing I noticed myself doing. So it's all subtitles. Neither of us speak enough Japanese to understand it. But actually, I find myself turning up the um, the audio so it's loud enough to hear it normally, even though I, well, I get about one, one nines in a hundred. But, but actually, thinking about it the way you've explained it, I mean, it's just sort of automatic. It's, oh, that's a bit quiet. I turn it up, uh, even though they're speaking sort of Japanese and I, I don't understand it. But actually, one of the things that you're, you're, you're quite right, actually, one's getting out of it, of course, is the emotion. Seeing the words translated with the sound off, you just got the body cues. And in particular, this one's kind of no drama style. So the equivalent to Lady Macbeth sits there utterly motionless. So you can read nothing into her body language at all. But the tone of her voice, even though it's in a language they don't understand, one can derive some from that. And indeed, it's, it's necessary for part of the interest in it. So just on that point, because you mentioned this sort of cross-cultural thing. I mean, again, it's something that uh, I'm sure you present on for three weeks without hesitation, repetition or deviation. So we all know that for just simply, there are, you know, you've got friends who are introverts and friends who are extroverts and, and they will use the word amazing in different ways and mean different things by it in their own personal context, even if they, you know, work in your, your company. Um, but then you've got, you know, the fact that sort of it's still quite a large place in the world. Um, and Japanese are like this and Russians uh, are like this and Albanians are, are like that. So in terms of the, the systems you're developing, how much sort of culture specific training does it require to, for example, Portugal, let's say, oh, I've got, I've got a great client for you, Ron. I know just the use case. It's a Portuguese bank for Portuguese clients. Before I introduce you, uh, is it going to take you a day, a week, a month or a year to get up to speed on sort of Portuguese intonation or something? I mean, just very briefly, because I know it's an impossible question, which will last forever to give a real answer to. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the, the short answer is uh, no. Uh, I mean, uh, it doesn't. I mean, we, we work out of the box on any language on the earth. And we get uh, amazing results uh, across the board. And the reason being is we're not focused on the language. Uh, we're focused on expression of emotions uh, through the pitch and tonal deliverance. And in that regard, we uh, are very similar across humanity. I mean, there's a science aspect to it. I mean, essentially, we're measuring Variance from the baseline of specific tonal variance and prosody, which sort of subtly differentiate between excitement and anger and sadness. And while the baseline may be slightly different across certain language sets, because there's certain languages, uh, certain cultures that speak in softer undertones and certain others speak in more sort of high pitch undertones, you recalibrate that baseline and that, that is done with a very small amount of data very quickly the variance is almost identical. So, I mean, the results are almost identical across language sets, across uh, across various cultures. We don't really convert the audio into text. So as a result, the language itself is not relevant for us. We don't even need a multilingual or multilanguage supporting ASR to deliver a solution. And when it comes to specifically to bias and cultural differences, we're very lucky to be working with emotions and voice, which is basically a pretty standard vernacular worldwide. I mean, we're sort of um, capturing and quantifying only the emotions and voice and not what is actually being said. And as a result, this is a tremendous advantage, specifically when you go into sort of the cost control training uh, 
you know, aspects to it. And bias is a whole different equation. We can talk about that. Well, I, I guess it comes back to this point that I was making before, which is that emotion is more of a felt bodily sense than it is a sort of a, a thought. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, if you did galvanic skin response to somebody who's angry, you'd measure different volts in their, their finger conductance, uh, skin, skin conductance. So uh, to that mm -hmm. extent, babies are born around the world roughly speaking, with a sort of very similar f physiology. And then somebody teach them a way to go blah, blah, blah. But as they grow up, they'll pretty much feel internally the same kind of thing. They will express it very differently in different societies. But the felt sense of your heart racing and, and, and being fearful it's the same for all human beings because it's a physiology thing that you're almost measuring. It's the same. Good. Okay. So, Rana, moving on to the applications use cases, uh, you, you mentioned banks as an example. And just segue into that by some idea of the kind of accuracy of the existing systems on the market, which, as you say, will translate the word amazing into Mike's really excited about this uh, product, but won't do the tonality. So what is your comparative performance like, behavioral signals approach to the existing ones on the market? And, and, and how does that relate to sort of human beings, just to give people a sort of a ballpark for, for what can be done at the moment? What's the sort of leading edge state of play? We built a very interesting product, which we call AI Mediated Conversations, uh, or AIMC for short. And um, it's a product that we've built very specifically for the financial sector, commercial banks, traditional banks, and also collections conglomerates, financial institutions. Anyone who's sort of uh, being involved in this very complex conversation between a debt holder and debt collector, which is essentially, you know, a, a complex uh, agent-customer conversation. And what, what EIMC does, it involves building profiles of customers and call center agents based on past interactions. These profiles are fed into uh, a predictive model that we've built to determine which agent should be paired with a specific customer in the future so that the desired outcome can be achieved. And I mean, the measurements of these kinds are extracted from patterns identified in one's voice because that's our focus and are based on our specific emotion AI science, namely the capability for the machine to understand the emotional state and the intentions of humans. So then once we create this predictive model, then it is employed essentially to assess the compatibility of all possible profile pairs. And it makes very specific recommendations regarding who should speak to whom in a given context. And for example, you know, if there's a client that needs to be called who potentially might be falling behind on her payments, then who should speak with her? Um, you know, should it be John or should it be Jason? And, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of determination this engine makes. And what we have seen is that, I mean, the premise is really simple. I mean, the, the larger premise is that there is no good agents or bad agents, as some of the people in the industry will tell you that there are good agents and bad agents. No, there are no good agents or bad agents. Neither are there good clients or bad clients. They're really good matches and bad matches, as is true for every conversation. So if you curate good matches, you generally would have a great conversation. And if you have a great conversation, you generally would have a great outcome, whatever that outcome is. So when we apply this very complex AI engine to matchmaking a debt holder and a debt collector setup, we see amazing business outcomes. Amazing from a perspective of 10 to 15% improvement in collections revenues. Wow. Which is staggering. That's pretty quantitative. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very good example about, ah, oh, yeah, I'll have one of your systems. Thank you very much. <laughs> I could do with that. Because th that's the kind of world where that's a really big change. It is a big change. I mean, and but I mean, and that's part of the story. That's only part of the story. The other part of the story is, yeah, sure. I mean, the bank's ecstatic because, I mean, you know, each of the agents is collecting about 10 to 15% in additional collections revenue. 
But the client's even more ecstatic, but the client leaves that conversation feeling happy, treated with respect in general, having had a great conversation. So it's a win-win, right? And, and it's, it's really, I mean, you know, from the simple premise, I mean, the premise is really simple, which is, hey, curate good matches of people whose conversational bioprints or the rhythms match, that they get into a flow, they have a great conversation, and then let the agents do what they do. Let them, let them do the jobs without interference. Like, let, let them talk to these people. I mean, most people want to pay and they want to get back on track. And uh, if they're treated with respect and if, they, if, they talk, if they're talking to a client, uh, agent who sort of like, you know, understands them and relates with them, generally they get to amazing outcomes. And uh, that, that is one amazing implementation of this, this technology and the science. Well, I'm, I'm really impressed, actually, because it's very creative approach of the technology because actually we didn't discuss the use cases before we kicked off and at the back of my mind had always been I mean there were a million questions at the back of my mind but one of them had been so you know somebody's at a call center and your system says that the let's say they work at Virgin Media ha, I had a few hours with them earlier in the year it's very easy at Virgin Media you just predict that whoever's calling is very cross because the service is rubbish and they keep you waiting for hours and hours and hours and oh it's a complete night uh, anyway so everybody's angry so I couldn't quite understand like, if you're using this at say Virgin Media you know, the person doing the call would go, Mike was very angry, you know, tick the box. And you don't need a computer to <laughs> to say that somebody says, look, I've been hanging on for four hours. It's outrageous. You know, I want us to scrap the whole thing. Da, 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 da. But I like the idea about the resource allocation. And I think it just, just does give an example about how when technology moves into completely different domain, completely different domain, reading the emotions in the, um, in the, in the voice patterns, how the use cases that this will be put to five, 10, 20 years are literally beyond the imagination I and mean, we've got to start somewhere but you know there's some fantastic possibilities so it's a, a fascinating one and i feel the need to sort of hold the horses back here rana because you've probably got some other stuff to do today as have i but i hope we've given listeners a, a bit of a feel it's very interesting i hadn't particularly thought through the uh, physiological arousal point and and therefore the cultural thing is sort of somewhat secondary because being angry in um, Timbuktu is the same as being sort of ang- angry in um, Toronto as far as your sort of heart rate and respiration and stuff like that is. Anyway, uh, before we wrap up the show, I thank all you listeners out there. I hope that you listeners detect serious <laughs> thanks in my voice um, and no sarcasm whatsoever. As without you all, uh, it'd be rather pointless doing all this. I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Theenlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So you've mentioned a bit about your background. I mean, just tell us sort of very briefly about behavioral signals. I mean, how many people have you got in the, in the company? Are you in many countries? Are you sort of still in the sort of the early stage or growth stage? Where, where are you at? Yeah, I'll definitely say we're sort of like, you know, uh, in the early parts of the growth stage. The company is relatively young. It was founded out of uh, University of Southern California in 2016. And uh, like with a lot of other deep tech AI companies, the first few years sort of focused on finessing the tech and then finding applicable use case to sort of apply it to. And that's what we've sort of done. We're headquartered out of Los Angeles. We have a small team in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where I am. We also have a team, uh, a fairly good-sized team in Athens, Greece. Uh, we're actually very active in Europe, both from a market standpoint and also, of course, uh, you know, we got a we got a sizable team out there in Athens. 
and uh, it's an important an important area of focus for us. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we're at and um, very, very focused on the financial sector at this moment, banks and collections conglomerates primarily. And I also think there's a ginormous opportunity considering the non-performing loan and the NPL landscape specifically uh, with uh, the impact of COVID um, that is uh, even more accentuated. Excellent. Well, if I was a go-ahead CTO of a bank, I would definitely get one of my people checking you guys out because they think that the potential um, use cases are, are very uh, broad indeed. And um, I suspect it's one of those things as well that it's quite good to have a little sort of play around oneself with just to get a feel for it rather than just buying a box and suddenly um, installing it in, in the bank because uh, often in domains such as that you're in, your best ideas can come from your clients. You know, you develop a system, as you explained, and they put it out there and then say, hey, we started using it for this. And go, oh, wow, I never thought of that. So that's really very exciting. So uh, very briefly, you're doing some fantastic work at the moment. What would it take to be even bigger, better, stronger in, in, in five years time? What do you need more of um, in case anybody sitting there listening uh, has it? Yeah, I mean, look, our ambitions include further focusing on the technology itself and investing in growth and obviously, you know, incorporating our AIMC solution in as many financial institutions as possible across the world. I mean, the biggest focus for us and also a challenge for us is education. I mean, it's a, it's a great equalizer and we're investing heavily in educating our potential clients, primarily the financial sector, as they embark on their AI journey and staying ahead of competition for them, specifically banks, uh, you know, requires not only innovation, but also the capacity to understand innovation. And our goal is to implement AI in the processes in a way that both consumers and financial institutions can both benefit from this breakthrough potential. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I think more dialogue is what we need. And so I think your platform is, you know, really very, very, very useful, very powerful. And uh, I think uh, I think we need more of those. And I think we need more of fintech specific platforms where uh, solutions which are very sort of uh, curated and for uh, are, are specifically designed for the sector can be discussed, can be talked about, and we can sort of like evaluate some of its applicabilities and then, you know, try things out. I think that's the ask and I see we're already doing it. So great. Great. Well, that sounds like uh, great fun. And I can well imagine that in, in five or 10 years time, the killer use case of this technology may surprise us all. But that's the great thing about being involved in sort of leading edge where things are, things are changing, which is you don't know tomorrow. I mean, I mentioned the early 80s when I was in software in the early 80s, I gave it up in whenever it was end of 84, because it was like doing the Times crossword. I, I knew how to do the crossword. I could do it. And I thought tomorrow would be the same. I came to the city and, and tomorrow was always, di- also, always changing, actually. Now, it turns out the tech, tech has caught up and tech's changing. But it sounds like a fascinating sphere to be in. And you've got just the background to take this forward, Rana. So thank you very much for that. It's been really very interesting. And, and sci-fi is becoming real, as I've said once or twice. And I wish you every success in the future. Well, thanks so much, Mike. And uh, I really appreciate inviting me to your uh, to your podcast, your show. And um, thankful to be here. And uh, thanks for the invite. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sitting in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride 
watching Happy Moon Ride. Watch the firelight dance with me. Watch the firelight. 